Over the coming weeks, as we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and 7, I'll be talking a lot about sex. So I know I'll have your full attention. Those sermons will be focused on how the gospel and the glory of God relate to our sexuality. As men and women made in God's image, redeemed by Jesus Christ, united to him and filled with the Spirit. Christians are human beings, and human beings are sexual beings. God made us that way, that we might glorify him through our sexuality, even Baptists. And if I were to summarize chapters 5, verse 1, through chapter 7, verse 40, my summary might be the two-part title of this morning's sermon. Flee sexual immorality, glorify God with your body. Flee sexual, sexual immorality being God's negative command to his people. Glorify God with your body, the positive. And this relates to sexual activity inside the God-ordained boundary of marriage between one man and one woman and everything outside that boundary. The apostles, the apostles' negative command to flee sexual immorality, that act that acts as a summary command from verses of chapters 5, verse 1 to 6:20, because in that section, Paul deals with incest, adultery, homosexual acts, and prostitution. Flee from those things. Not flee from those things out there, out there in the wicked world, and so join together in a Christian commune, out in the desert, in a holy huddle of separation. That's not what he's saying. Paul's saying, flee from sexual immorality in ourselves. We used to be a sexually immoral people, but no longer. We've been washed. We've been sanctified. We've been justified. All of us. So we flee now from sexual immorality, just like Joseph from Potiphar's wife. And then bringing, beginning with the second half of verse 20, we see the other side of this obedience coin. Therefore, honor, or, or better, glorify God with your bodies. And that command sets us up for Paul's treatment throughout chapter 7 of Christian singleness, widowhood, sex within Christian marriage, divorce, and remarriage. But our text today and next week, parts 1 and 2, verses 12 through 20, is the hinge. The surrounding chapters pivot on this fulcrum. So, if you enjoy biblical teaching, and I trust you do because all of us, our great need is to know God better... And if you desire to be more holy and to love God with your lifestyle of obedience, bringing glory to your God and your Savior, then our passage today, as the Spirit works through the Word in conjunction with the Word, will be a blessing. Yes, this is certainly a theologically dense text, which is why I've divided it into two parts, but it's gloriously practical, too. Be you married in a Christian dating relationship, or a Christian single. Of course, if there are any here today who love their sin, who love their sexual immorality more than Jesus, if there are any here today who love their moral autonomy more than being lovingly ruled over by their creator God whose image they bear, and whose judgment seat we all will stand before on the final day, then today's sermon is going to be offensive in the extreme. And next week's sermon, even more so. But it's my prayer that God, through his spirit, would be gracious, and he would reveal to his people the truth. It's my prayer that this sermon would not fall on deaf ears and stony heart soil. Today I'm only preaching three verses from chapter 6, verses 12, 13 and 14, that may be a record, folks. (laughs) But we need to take time and, and care to examine this portion of God's word in some detail. Yes, we do. We want to be a people who flee from sexual immorality and who glorify God with our bodies, but not mindlessly. We want to do so with understanding, with theological understanding. And I believe the last half of 1 Corinthians chapter 6 is the most important chapter in the whole Bible concerning sexual immorality among Christians. 
The bodily resurrection of Christ underscores the sanctity and the future of the believer's body. In going to prostitutes, the Corinthian Christians are renouncing the lordship of Christ over their physical bodies and denying their resurrection life to come. We must understand this. We must understand, all of us, how our sexual morality is connected to our union with Jesus Christ. Also today, we're going to be considering the last eight verses of chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, that all-important New Testament text on the bodily resurrection of believers at Jesus' return. Loved ones, God's word is very clear. Our physical bodies play an essential role in God's salvation plan. The God of redemption is also the God of creation. And in creation, as Genesis 1 stresses repeatedly, God made everything good, including physical, material reality, including our bodies. Our bodies both in the here and now and in the eternity of resurrection existence. So what we do with our bodies now in this life matters. First Corinthians chapter six, verse 18, flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. And so today we land on the shore, we establish our beachhead that takes us up to verse 14. And then next Sunday, Lord willing, in part two, we'll make our way inland to the end of the chapter. A nice military metaphor there. Uh, But before we establish our beachhead, let me just mention one thing more. I'm aware of the negative rebuking tone that naturally creeps into a sermon like this. Uh, I'm doing my best to balance that out. But Paul's tone is one of rebuke. And that must be reflected, I think, to some degree in how I preach this text. Rest assured, this sermon is not an exasperated rebuke to the members of this church. Uh, But it is a warning to God's people. And it's a warning we all must heed. Sexual immorality amongst Christians is unconscionable. You may not know just how serious a Christian's sexual immorality is, but after we make our way through chapter 6, you will. But it's not God's intention that we read this text and get scared into being sexually pure, or that we learn all the strict puritanical rules and with God's stern rebuke ringing in our ears, live accordingly. No. Our sexual purity, our glorifying God with our physical bodies, comes out of our understanding of our union with Jesus Christ. That's the theological bedrock to this whole thing. So, even though the chapter's tone is one of rebuke, I want us to see the awesome, the glorious privilege we have as Christians of being united with the resurrected Jesus Christ. That's why Paul's tone is so exasperated, because the Corinthians don't get this. They don't see this. And to give credit where it's due, uh, today's sermon, as well as next, owes a debt to Denny Burke's fine book, What is the Meaning of Sex? Uh, I found this very useful in my sermon prep, and I recommend this book to you. Now, if you look at the top of the sermon outline in your bulletin, we see that they're the fourth of ten problems Paul's addressing in the Corinthian church and his gospel solutions. We're at problem number four now, chapter 6, 12 to 20. Some Corinthian Christians are excusing sexual immorality because it occurs outside the body. Gospel solution. Your body matters because God will raise it up like he raised the Lord. Your body is a member of Christ, so you should not make it a member of a prostitute. You do not have the right to do whatever you want with your body because God owns it. And he owns it because he redeemed you at the cost of his son's life. So glorify God with your body by not committing sexual immorality. And be we married or single, male or female, if we're Christians attracted to the same gender or Christians attracted to the opposite gender, 
This truth must inform every aspect of how our sexuality is expressed and how it must never be expressed. This matter has nothing to do with any rulings by the federal court. It has nothing to do with cultural consensus or mere personal opinion. The sexual ethic for the Christian is absolutely linked to his or her union with the resurrected Jesus. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit, in anticipation of our bodily resurrection, and all to the glory of God. We're going to take two sermons to unpack that. All right. So point number one, brothers and sisters, understand your Christian freedom and keep that freedom in balance with the lordship of the risen Christ over your physical body, which one day will be resurrected. The bodily resurrection of Christ underscores the sanctity and the future of the believer's body. In going to prostitutes, the Corinthian Christians are renouncing the lordship of Christ over their bodies and denying their resurrection life to come. I was talking to a Christian brother a while back about his confirmed habit of illegally downloading and watching pirated movies. There are lawyers in our midst, so I say this with fear and trembling, but piracy is the unauthorized reproduction or use of copyrighted materials. And I've known seminary students and pastors who have illegally downloaded what would otherwise be very expensive Bible software. I've been tempted to do the same thing. Uh, some, Some of the better... Biblical language software costs thousands of dollars. It's not fair. (laughs) But the Bible is unambiguous in its prohibition against stealing. Theft is never a matter of conscience. Uh, Yet my friend, the Christian pirate, he wanted the movie so badly that he denied his conscience grounds for calling his actions theft. He did this through rationalization. Have you ever done that? Have you ever rationalized sin in order that you may indulge in it or perhaps pacify your howling conscience having already indulged in it? Sure you have. We all have. And my friend the pirate rationalized his theft through a cunning regimen of philosophical and legal gymnastics. And so he managed to suppress his conscience and push aside the clear teaching of Scripture. Christian, every time we rationalize sin, we harden our hearts. Every time we rationalize evil, we put a callus on our conscience. And that puts our soul in danger. And partly, this is why the Apostle Paul appeals to the Corinthians so urgently in verses 12 through 20. Because he's addressing some of the most gifted rationalizers who ever walked the face of the earth. Remember... This church is proud that there's a member in their congregation who's in a sexual relationship with his stepmother. They're able to rationalize incest. But the Corinthian Christians once knew and practiced the truth. These are people that Paul himself evangelized and won to Christ. He'd spent a year and a half in Corinth, and he had plenty of time to develop significant relationships with them and to provide them with extensive instruction in the gospel. Nevertheless, after Paul left, a group of men in the church began having sex with prostitutes. Now, why these men thought it was fine to have sexual relations with prostitutes is very difficult to reconstruct. Um, as is the context or occasion in which they were hiring the women. Uh, The literature on this is voluminous, and and no one seems able to agree. Uh, And this is the sort of thing that makes reading and preaching 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians so difficult. There is a great deal going on behind the scenes. There's so much that's understood between Paul and the church that's actually not written on the surface of the letter. There's There's a tacit understanding And so we have to read sort of between the lines and reconstruct the historical situation. And that's difficult. Was this prostitution in some way related to pagan temple worship? Or was this prostitution completely secular? Was this a matter of some Christian men sleeping with prostitutes after private banquets at pagan temples, which pretty much served as restaurants in those days? That's where you would eat meat. It was a a real delicacy. 
Well, we'll get into that more next week. For my money, it's the latter. Um, But we do know this. We do know that this um, enlightened sexual outlook of the Corinthians is due to them thinking something along these lines. They're thinking something like this. All things are lawful for me. And we'll see in a moment. That's that's one of their church slogans. All things are lawful for us. Uh, Everything is permitted. In Jesus, through whom we've received the Holy Spirit, we have the right to pretty much do anything. Uh, There are no ethical consequences. The Spirit has lifted us up above the merely earthly, above the merely fleshy. So what Paul calls sexual immorality is of no consequence to spiritual people like us. There's a distance between deeds done in the physical body and the spiritual level of life that we've attained to. And as I've explained before, most commentators think that there's a material, spiritual dualism at work in their thinking. There's also an over-realized eschatology at work, a theology which assumes that all or most of the blessings of the age to come are already being experienced in their fullness. And so Paul devotes the rest of this chapter to correcting these men and the rationalization for their bad behavior, their sinful behavior. And so we begin with verse 12 of chapter 6. I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. Have you noticed these pithy little slogans, these catchphrases that are scattered throughout the book of 1 Corinthians? Some things never change. This is something that that Christians still do. Uh, Probably one of the most popular evangelical slogan catchphrases is, God hates the sin but loves the sinner. How many times have you heard that old chestnut? (laughs) Perhaps, perhaps you say it yourself. Uh, But if we do, we're actually not quoting a biblical text. It's an evangelical cliché. And there's more than just a slogan going on there. There's a theology, and it's a none-too-precise theology at that, be informing that slogan. God hates the sin, but loves the sinner. Sure, there's an element of truth in that. It's correct in one sense. Certainly, we need to be maintaining a difference between God's view of sin and his view of the sinner. And it would be wrong to conclude that God has nothing but hate for the sinner. I certainly hope not. Otherwise, we're all, we're all damned. We're all doomed here. Because we're all sinners. But on the face of things, the slogan is actually false. Fourteen times in the first 50 Psalms alone, we're told that God hates the sinner. That his wrath is on the liar and so forth. So Psalm 5.5. The arrogant cannot stand in your presence. You hate all who do wrong. Psalm 11.5. The Lord examines the righteous, but the wicked, those who love violence, he hates with a passion. John 3.36, whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. So verses about God's wrath remaining on people who reject Jesus, that just can't be easily reconciled with a breezy, cavalier cliche about God loving sinners and hating the sin. Uh, It's a sermon unto itself, as far as I'm going to go, but the doctrine of the love of God is more complex than that. It's more nuanced. And several times in this letter, Paul indicates that he's heard some catchy, pithy slogan cliches that the Corinthians are using to justify, to rationalize their sinful behavior. What do we read back in chapter 1, verse 12? I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. I follow Cephas. I follow Christ. There's bad theology behind that slogan that's justifying sin. In this case, divisiveness within the church. And as he often does, Paul quotes the Corinthian slogan back to them, and then he refutes their pagan worldview with gospel truth. He says, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? Another example, which we'll look at in two weeks from now, is uh, chapter 7, verses 1 through 2. The slogan reads, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Sure, if you're single, that's a great slogan. And if, if, you're, if you have the gift of celibacy, that's a great slogan. Uh, but behind that slogan, that as they're quoting it, they're talking about promoting celibacy within marriage. Within marriage, which is a bad, terrible, sinful idea. What's Paul's response? Chapter 7, verse 2. But since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. And so throughout 1 Corinthians, 
Paul quotes the Corinthian slogan. He gives their slogan limited endorsement, and then he substantially qualifies it. It's like this. Yes, but over and over again. And as we see in chapter 6, verses 12 through 20, it's the same thing. The Corinthians need to see the emptiness of their sloganeering and sinful, rationalizing excuses. Their pagan worldview needs to be more informed by the gospel, and Paul is going to help them do just that. And the first issue he addresses in verses 12 through 14 is the limits of Christian freedom and the implications of Jesus' bodily resurrection. That's how he starts things off. And this is as far as we're going to take things today in chapter 6 before concluding in our second point with the last eight verses of chapter 15. We need to cover all the theological background first so that next week we can just dive right into the deep end and understand everything that's going on. So look at verse 12. I have the right to do anything you say. All things are lawful to me. And then Paul responds with this qualified endorsement. Yes, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything. Yes, but I will not be mastered by anything. Now, can you imagine if a visitor came to our service today, Christian, and, and they heard me say that, right, in the course of this sermon? Christian, you have the right to do anything. All things are lawful for you. What are they just going to naturally infer? It's, it's as good as an invitation to sin, isn't it? I mean, it sounds like it's open season here at New City Baptist Church. Do whatever you want. And as an expression of a Christian's freedom in Jesus Christ, all things are lawful for me is certainly true on one level. It's similar to Paul's language that he uses in Romans, isn't it? Uh, where Paul writes about the Christian's relationship to the law of Moses. Paul writes that, the Christian, that Christians are not under the law, that we've died to the law of Moses, that we've been released from the law of Moses, which means no more dietary restrictions. You can eat all the pork you want. No more need to keep Sabbath. No, no need to be circumcised. The entire Mosaic law covenant is obsolete, along with its temple, its priesthood, its animal sacrifices. Now, now we can't be certain, but it wouldn't be a far leap from that to these decontextualized statements of all things are lawful for me. I have the right to do anything. Any sort of ethical imperative here is just getting chucked out the window. And it would be all the easier if mixed into this slogan is this spirit, material, neoplatonist duality, this over-realized eschatology so prevalent in the church in Corinth. And so Paul has to tell them, he has to lay it out for them, Yes, you certainly have freedom, brothers and sisters. Yes, you have a, a tremendous amount of liberty in Jesus Christ. But there's still such a thing as sin. There still needs to be Christian obedience to the law of Jesus Christ. An obedience flowing out of a worldview where the cross and the lordship of the resurrected Jesus is at its very center. We were once a people characterized by sin, but no more. Now we're different. Now we've been washed. We've been sanctified. We've been justified. The true Christian is not characterized by evil behavior. Not because we're walking on a path of merit that's going to earn us salvation. No, salvation is all of grace. It's all God's unmerited favor. The late great Welsh preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones once made a telling point. He said, there is no better test as to whether a Christian is really proclaiming the New Testament gospel of salvation than that the unbeliever might misunderstand it and misinterpret it to mean that because we've been saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ and because we can't boast in any good work we've done, then it doesn't matter at all what we do or how we live. Let's eat, drink, and be merry. We're saved by faith. I want to ask, Christian, do people ever make that mistake with you when you're proclaiming to them what God has accomplished in Jesus' death and resurrection for sin? Lloyd-Jones would say, and I would agree with him, that unless someone honestly makes that mistake, unless they honestly ask us about that, then we're probably not preaching the gospel of justification through faith alone. Kind of like what Paul says in Romans 6.1. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sitting so that grace may increase? That's just a natural kind of reaction to the understanding of justification through faith. It's something to think about. 
And so this neoplatonist, over-realized eschatology at work in the Corinthian thinking is wreaking spiritual havoc. It's allowed them both a false view of freedom, I have the right to do anything, and it's a false view of the human body. God will destroy the merely physical, the earthly, the fleshy, the body, so nothing I do in the body counts. That's how they're thinking. And from this unbiblical basis, men in the church are arguing that sex with prostitutes then is permissible. And not just arguing for it, like in the theological abstract, they're actually doing it. So the apostle responds in two ways to that slogan in verse 12. First, he says, yes, certain things may be lawful, but not everything is beneficial. And that word beneficial is used in only two other places in this letter. And each time in both contexts, it does not denote benefit to oneself, but benefit to others, in particular, others within the body of Christ, within the church. Just look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 23 and 24, just for a minute. This is in the context of eating meat sacrificed to idols in pagan temples. I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I mean, it's almost a direct quote. I have have the right to do anything, but not everything is constructive. No one should seek their own good, but the good of others. Do you see? Our, Our freedom in Christ is beneficial only if it promotes the good of others in the church. The second example is found in chapter 12, verse 7. Now, to each one of the manifestations of the Spirit is given for the common good. It's the same word, common good. What this means is Paul's not dismissing the idea of Christian freedom. He's not dismissing the idea of Christian liberty. Of course we have that. He's not responding to the Corinthians by saying, no, there is no Christian freedom whatsoever. We're all laboring under this divine yoke where God commands, do this, do that, or I'll smite you. I mean, Christianity is not a religion where it's just a list of rules. Instead... What Paul's doing is he's tweaking the Corinthian misunderstanding of freedom in order to bring it in line with the gospel. Christian freedom, that which is lawful, is limited in part by the obligation to build up the body of Christ. Hear that again. A good life motto. (laughs) Christian freedom, that which is lawful, is limited in part by the obligation to build up the body of Jesus Christ. Truly Christian conduct is not predicated on whether I have the right to do something, but whether my conduct is helpful to my brothers and sisters. And if that's not something you're prepared to do, then you signed up for the wrong religion, frankly. Romans 14, 19, let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and mutual edification. Which means the ethical question we all have to ask ourselves as Christians is not merely, is this or that activity okay for me to do? Is it permitted? How much can I get away with? How how close to the edge can I come? The question is, Will this or that activity help or be a hindrance to my brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ? What would love have me do? Yes, such and such may be permitted. But will it benefit the body of Jesus Christ? So, Paul's not playing his trump card with that first part of verse 12. He's not sort of wiping the dust from his hands and saying, that, that settles the matter <laughs> about having sex with prostitutes. No, Paul's just getting started, and our sermon is almost done. Uh, obviously, sex with prostitutes is always sin. There's never freedom to do such a thing. It's benefiting the body of Christ or not. never comes into the question, so don't read it like that. No, this is a general principle of Christian freedom, a general principle the Corinthians have forgotten. It's not entering into their thinking at all, and so Paul's correcting them. He's going to correct them big time some more on this front in chapter 10 when he addresses the issue of eating meat sacrificed to idols in pagan temples. But now, in the second half of verse 12, Paul cranks up his argument and relates things more specifically to sexual immorality. Verse 12b. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. Now, this is a bit trickier to understand. The verb Paul's using, mastered, is found in only one other place in this letter. If you flip over to chapter 7, verse 4, you can see it. 
The wife does not have authority over, she is not the master over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over, he is not the master over his own body, but yields it to his wife. The married partner has authority over their spouse's body. So I think it's likely, verse 12 refers to the Corinthians coming under the power, coming under the authority, the mastery of the prostitute. What Paul means is that by being joined to her in sexual immorality, someone else, someone outside their spouse, is the unlawful lord and master of their own body. Paul's telling the Corinthians, in your sexual freedom, you will not be mastered by anything, because the Lord has mastery over your body. And that leads directly into verse 13, and yet another Corinthian slogan. You say, and he's quoting the Corinthians here, food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. Again, we see that this slogan is how they're rationalizing, how they're justifying their sexual immorality. The human body's design reveals its purpose. Food for the stomach and the stomach for food. God gave us stomachs to eat. Right? He gave us stomachs for a reason, to eat food. And that's what the stomach is made for. And in the same way, so they would argue, God gave us sexual organs for a reason, to have sex. Sex for the sexual organs and sexual organs for sex. Sex is meant for the body and the body is meant for sex. That's what they're saying. What could be more evident? What could possibly be wrong with using the body according to its purpose? But what we're seeing here, though, is confusing subordinate and ultimate ends. I might point to a car and say, that car was made for someone to sit in it. And since there are doors on each side of the car and there are seats inside, then no one could deny that one of the purposes of that car is for people to get inside the car and sit down, right? But that's not an adequate description of the purpose of an automobile. No, the ultimate purpose of a car is to transport people from place to place. Sitting down in the car is the subordinate end. Transportation is the ultimate end. And that's what the Corinthians are confused with here. Paul doesn't question the body is made for sex. That's why we have sexual organs. But it's a subordinate end. Which is why he says in 13b, the body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, as you surmise but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. Our bodies exist for the Lord. That is its ultimate end. And since the body exists for the Lord, its proper use must be then under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Sleeping with prostitutes is not one of the Lord's purposes for a Christian's body. It's it's not a matter, ever a matter of, I was born this way so I can do it, or my body is designed this way so I can use it this way. No, sex isn't to be enjoyed ultimately for its own sake, but for God's glory. Nothing in the Christian's life is to be enjoyed ultimately for its own sake. Not our jobs, not our families, our money, our talent, our intellect, our health. Nothing. Every, every facet of our life, of our existence, is to be offered up to God as a living sacrifice to bring him glory, including sex. And we'll be unpacking that much more in the weeks to come. I'm just introducing us to the concept this morning, but this teaching serves as part of the bedrock of the Christian sexual ethic. Hear this. Enjoying sex for God's glory you know, those might sound like incompatible <laughs> things, but enjoying sex for God's glory means shunning every union, every sexual union outside of the covenantal marital union of one man and one woman. And within that marital union, as we'll see when we come to chapter 7, there is a sexuality that serves our spouse and thus glorifies God. Verse 13, you say food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. And this now is the second part of the Corinthians' justification for their sexual immorality. As we, as we see, it's flowing out of a massively distorted doctrine of the resurrection. God will destroy them both. 
Not only did the Corinthians believe they were using their bodies the way that they were designed, the food for the stomach and the stomach for food, but physical bodies ultimately give way to death. God will destroy the body. So it doesn't matter what we do with our bodies in this lifetime. There is no bodily sin. Good grief. I mean, this, this, it's, it's inconceivable that this church was planted by the Apostle Paul just a mere five years before. It's gone so far off the rails. May this serve as a warning to us, New City. Do you recall Paul's rebuke in 1 Corinthians 15, 12? How can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. Verse 17, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. See, this this is a disaster. This is a direct assault on the gospel. If there is no resurrection, that means Jesus has not been raised from death. And so faith that believes he did is futile. Christians are to be pitied as deluded fools because we're still in our sin. The apostles are liars. And all Christians who died ahead of us, they're in hell. But these implications aren't registering with the Corinthians. How are they looking at things? They're thinking, well, since every person must ultimately die and lose their body to the dust because there is no bodily resurrection, God must not care much about our physical bodies. And if God doesn't think much of our physical bodies in the age to come, then why would he care what we do with our bodies right now? So have sex with prostitutes. Why not? It's fine. Because the physical body figures very little in God's moral economy. And this really is the foundational theological error of the Corinthians, the moral irrelevance of the physical body. Brothers and sisters, I know this is, there's a complexity to this, obviously. We have to understand this. Everything flows from this. All their sin, all their misunderstanding of the gospel comes down to this. The teaching that God's salvation does not involve the physical human body. This is the philosophy of Plato through and through. This dualism, this disdain for the physical world, for the higher knowledge and wisdom of spiritual existence, And so Paul attacks this satanic logic in verse 14. He attacks it with gospel truth. No, death is not the ultimate end of the believer's body. Resurrection is the ultimate end of the believer's body. Look at verse 14. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Just as surely Jesus' body was raised, so also shall Jesus' people be raised bodily in the age to come. So do you see? The bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ underscores the sanctity and the future of the believer's body, the Christian's body. By his power, God raised the Lord Jesus from the dead, and he will raise us also. Brothers and sisters, hear me. Understand this. (laughs) To misunderstand the ultimate destiny of the physical body not only opens up the Christian to all sorts of sexual sin, it undermines the hope of the gospel itself. Your physical body is not insignificant and transient. On the contrary, it will be raised on the final day. And since our physical bodies will be raised, since the ultimate end of our bodies is not death and moldering dust, but eternal resurrection life. It's important now how we behave with our bodies. And that's where Paul goes in the rest of the chapter. So we'll return to this next week, Lord willing. But I'm going to end with this. Perhaps there's a Christian here today who's tempted to say, Pastor John, why all this fuss over the physical body? 
Who needs it? Let it go. Now, I'm, I'm more than happy, honestly, to be a, dis, uh, a dis, disembodied spirit, just floating around sort of in a, an ethereal, heavenly world on a cloud somewhere. After all, after all, all that really, really matters are the spiritual realities of love and joy and peace and righteousness and goodness and truth. Why all this fuss? over arms and legs and hands and hair and feet and eyes and ears and tongues. It it, it seems so earthly. Just give me Jesus forever. God forbid. God forbid. No Christian who understands the gospel, no Christian who understands the whole story of God's redemption would ever want to believe such a thing. We need to take a page from the Apostle Paul's book. Paul, because he always is wearing his salvation historical sunglasses, it just tints everything he looks at. He realizes something the Corinthians and many, many, many Christians today have forgotten. That the God of redemption is also the God of creation. And in creation, as Genesis 1 stresses repeatedly, God made everything good, including our physical bodies, including physical, material reality, but due to the disobedience of the first man, Adam, sin and death have entered into the world, Romans 5. And, and what's crucial to stress is that since sin and death affect both physical and spiritual reality, so redemption, God's redemption, if it's to be complete, and if God is to be all in all, so redemption must also affect both the physical and the spiritual realm. Do you see, God's salvation plan is only complete when both those realms have been utterly transformed. The dead in Christ must be raised bodily. Our earthly bodies must be transformed. Turn with me now for our concluding point, 1 Corinthians 15, the New Testament resurrection text, verse 50. I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood, that is human nature as we know it, mortal, perishable, sin-stained, decaying, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. So if you're hoping to do that as an ethereal spirit, it's not going to work. Verse 51, listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, we will not all die. But we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. The trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. The old body will become a new body in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet when Jesus Christ returns. What does Paul write in Romans 8, 22 to 25? We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. What's Paul talking about? Resurrection bodies, the redemption of our physical bodies. We wait eagerly. We groan inwardly, waiting for this day. Our salvation, New City, while definitively secured for us at conversion, always has an element of incompleteness to it. There's more to come. God wants us to look ahead, to look forward. We have the first fruits now. We have the down payment now, but the full harvest, right? That's still coming. And so God's people groan in expectant hope for the redemption of our bodies. Do you? We eagerly yearn for that culminating transformation of resurrection and life in the new heavens and new earth. Do you? Even the souls of the brothers and sisters who have gone ahead of us into that intermediate state called heaven, they too eagerly yearn for that culminating transformation of the resurrection. Our body fits into the biblical category of physical creation. And if God is to be all in all, supreme over everything, everywhere, forever, sin and death must be destroyed. And for death to be destroyed completely, the dead in Christ must rise. Not to have a resurrection body 
to be content with a disembodied afterlife in an ethereal spiritual world? Beloved, at the very root of that gospel-shattering, satanic picture of eternity is the trivialization of both sin and death. If God is truly to redeem his people and this world, if God's plan of salvation is truly to be complete, then not only must Christ be raised as a demonstration that sin has been dealt with on his cross, that death has been defeated, but we too physically must be raised with him. And if we let that go, we let go of the gospel. Because without Christ's resurrection, without our resurrection in him, there is no salvation. We're going to hell. If we do not rise from the grave, God's good creation is not restored, and God's plan of salvation does not encompass all that sin has affected, both the spiritual and physical realities. Which is why those Christians who are alive when Christ returns, that might be 10,000 years in the future, but those Christians who are alive will be transformed, verse 51. Those who are dead will come out of their graves transformed, verse 52. It must be so. It must be so. For it is only then that what Christ inaugurated in his first coming will be consummated in his second. And death itself, the last enemy, finally and definitively, will be destroyed. That's when it happens. Verse 53, for the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then and only then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory, not a limited pseudo victory over death. And that's precisely what a disembodied spiritual postmortem existence would be. That is a pseudo victory. No, our bodily resurrection on the last day signifies absolute victory over death. Our bodily resurrection signifies the destruction of death, the death of death. Then the victory taunt may be sung. I won't do it here, but you know how kids go, na, 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 na. It's a taunt, right? That's how you read verse 55. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? It's a taunt. Christian, know this. If Jesus does not return before you die, you will be laid in your grave. One day, that's going to be you. The firefighters are prying out of the demolished wreck on the side of the 401. One day, that's going to be you in the last stages of the disease, volunteering as a guinea pig for the latest cancer-fighting drug. One day, that's going to be you hooked up to a machine to keep you breathing. One day, that's going to be you being placed into that coffin. That's going to be you in the crematorium. But in spite of that, you can look in the face of the reality of death and make a mockery of it. A mockery. Why? How? Jesus, who died for our sins, is now alive. And in his death and in his resurrection, death has been destroyed. Sin has been paid for and the demands of the law have been met. Verse 56. Jesus has nailed our sin to his cross, thus securing our justification, our reconciliation, and our redemption. In breaking the power of sin, in paying its penalty, in satisfying the demands of the law, Jesus has destroyed the power of death, and he has removed its sting. This is how every Christian can taunt death, even as we're laying on our deathbed. Ours is the victory in Jesus Christ, in his resurrection, the end has dawned. And even though we may die before he returns, we shall, indeed we must, be raised again to life. He is the first fruits. We are the full harvest. Verse 58. Therefore, Paul concludes, my brothers and sisters, stand firm. After all that, that's what he says. Stand firm. Let Nothing move you. Nothing. 
always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. And with that gospel bedrock understood, we're ready to look at the rest of chapter 6 next week. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we read in your word that we will be joyful, we will be a people of integrity if we follow your instructions as revealed to us in your word, Psalm 119. And we thank you for Holy Scripture. You are God. You are the God who has disclosed himself in human words to his fallen creation. Joyful are those who obey your laws and who search for you with all their hearts. And as we've just heard your word preached, this is our prayer, Father. We earnestly seek to be fashioned and instructed by your word more and more into the image of Christ. We don't want to merely hear your word. We want to do what it says, even if it costs us a great deal. We do not want to compromise with evil. We want only to walk in your paths, Lord. You have charged us to keep your commandments carefully. And we pray that our actions would consistently reflect your decrees. Then we won't be ashamed when we compare our life with your commands. And as we learn your righteous regulations, we will thank you by living as we should. How can a person be sexually pure? By obeying your word. So teach us your decrees, O Lord. Give us understanding and grant us repentance. By your spirit, make us walk along the path of your commands, for that is where our true happiness is found. Give us an eagerness for your laws rather than a love for immoral sex. Turn our eyes from worthless things and give us life through your word. Reassure us of your covenantal promises made to those who fear you. Help us by the power of the Spirit to abandon our shameful ways, for your regulations are good. Grant us grace to delight in your commands, to love them and to put them into practice. We pray this in Jesus' powerful and holy name. Amen.